sometimes your sermons just seem to flow with uh, the way the, the calendar is set up. And, and last week we had Pentecost and we were really talking about how the Spirit is moving. Well, this week we're talking about Esther on Father's Day. So sometimes the calendar doesn't always match up with where the sermon series is going. We've been looking at lessons that we learned from the exiles, and we've been kind of camping out largely in the book of Daniel. Uh, last week, we looked at Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. Well, those aren't the only places that we can read about God's people in exile and, and look at some of the lessons that we can learn. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Queen Esther, and that gives us a glimpse into the, the struggles and the dilemmas of those who are living in exile. There's this dilemma, there's this struggle that is set up for the Jewish people under King Ahasuerus, or if you're looking at some uh, translations, they see, say King Xerxes, um, they kind of translating the, the name there a little differently sometimes. The story starts off when the king of Persia is holding a banquet. And after seven days of merriment, uh, he decides he's going to bring his wife in and have her prayed around for everyone to gawk at her and, and see her beauty and say, man, you, how did you ever marry such a beautiful person? She refuses and the king ends up stripping her of her title and banishing her. There's all kinds of relational and, and marriage stuff that we could look at in this uh, response back and forth. Uh, all of the nobles that see the queen kind of diss the king and not show up, they say, you know, everybody, all the other wives are going to start thinking for themselves too, and heaven knows we don't want that happening. Well, that, that's a sermon for another time. We'll talk about that later. The queen is sent away, and then a beauty pageant is set up. Long story short is that Esther is declared the winner of that beauty pageant. During the pageant, cousin Mordecai finds out about a plot to assassinate the king, and he relays the message to Esther, who then goes and tells the king. The king is thankful for this servant who has saved his life. And later in the story, he wants to come up with a way to, to honor someone who has been faithful. And he goes to his uh, kind of head advisor, Haman, and he says, what do you think I should do for someone who's really been faithful and who has really uh, set themselves out there to, to honor the king and, and to save the king's life? What do you think I should do? And Haman thinks he's talking about himself. And so Haman thinks, well, what would I want done for me? How do I want the king to honor me? And he concocts this plan to have this grand ticker tape parade and robes and horses and all this uh, great honor bestowed on what he thinks is going to be him. Well, it's Mordecai that the king wants to honor. And when Haman finds out that it's Mordecai, it just it really aggravates him, this, this Jew, this exile. This is who you want to honor. 
and his jealousy, his, his rage against the Jewish people and against Mordecai in particular just grows and grows and grows and he has to think of some way of getting rid of these people. Kind of echoes the story of Daniel who has been faithful in, in honoring the king and the other advisors get really jealous of Daniel and they have to concoct some scheme to get rid of Daniel. In the middle of this story, then, the king issues this decree to have all the Jews destroyed. A date gets set for the destruction of the Jewish people across the empire. And Mordecai and the Jewish people go into to mourning and, and fasting, and they're putting on sackcloth. They're, they're showing, they're displaying their grief. They send news of the coming destruction back to Esther. And Mordecai says to Esther, he, he says, go and, and beg for mercy from the king. You need to go. You need to plead the case of your people. Esther responds back that anyone who comes to the king without being summoned could be put to death. She's maybe new to this job, this role is, as queen, and she doesn't really want to risk it at first. Mordecai responds, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. I think it's interesting that, that Mordecai seems to have great faith in God to rescue him. Even This is interesting to me. Esther is the only book that does not explicitly mention the name of God. And yet God's fingerprints are all over the book. And here's one instance where Mordecai seems to have faith in, in being saved as a people, whether Esther responds or not. But she says, uh, Mordecai says, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Esther's response is basically to say, okay, let's fast and let's pray about this. And then I'll go to the king and if I perish, I perish. She says, you need to pray with me. Get all the people to pray with me and we're going to fast. There's all kinds of things that we could learn about fasting. Fasting is giving up eating and, and replacing it with coming into the presence of God, of, of seeking Him so intensely that you're not worried about the food, you're not worried about what, what else is happening, you're just coming and, and seeking God passionately in that time. They come, they pray, and they fast. Let me take, make two observations about Esther's response. The first is that we have seen how spiritual disciplines are critical to those in exile. Spiritual disciplines are those, those practices that we go through that help form us into being God's people. And in particular, over this exile series, we've talked about worship. We talked about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, how they refuse to worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And so worship is critical to them. 
in the story of Daniel and the lion's den, we see how important prayer is to Daniel. And here we're talking about fasting, this earnest, pouring out your heart before God kind of fasting. Spiritual disciplines are so important. When, when there's all kinds of things in the empire, in the world around us that are trying to, to form us, advertisement and, and media and social media and all kinds of other things trying to, to form us into its likeness, these spiritual disciplines, worship, prayer, fasting, studying scripture, God-centered meditation, all kinds of other uh, spiritual disciplines that help form us into the people God desires us to be. The other thing I see here in Esther's response is the costly nature of following God in exile. And we've seen this play out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We won't bow down to the idol, and we don't care what it costs us. Daniel, knowing full well what the edict is, that he's not to pray to anyone but the king, and if he does, he'll face the lions. And he says, I, I have to keep praying to God. I have to keep praying to Yahweh. He is the one true God, and, and I know what that might cost me. And here, Esther says, Look, let's pray, let's fast, let's, let's seek God's will, and then I'll go, and if I perish, I perish. In exile, discipleship costs us. I've heard this sentiment from a number of close friends, people who have raised well-adjusted children, kids that are thriving and growing and, and even following Jesus. But when their kids were, were young, they said things like, my kids have to be at, at this event and that event and, and this other thing. And, and I have to do this for my job. I don't like it, but I just, I have to do it. Let me lay my cards out on the table. I believe wholeheartedly that as followers of Jesus... Those who are apprenticing to be like the rabbi, we have a choice. And I acknowledge full well that my choice may cost. It may cost me. It may cost my children. It may cost my family. I had a father years ago whose daughter was in all kinds of activities, um, and she's, she's a great kid, wonderful kid. They raised a great daughter. She was in all these different things, and, and those were opportunities for her to be growing and learning. Every year, uh, she was involved in something that uh, she was never able to go on a youth ski retreat. Now, ski retreats come and go, and sometimes great things happen at those retreats, and sometimes nothing important happens at those ski retreats. But she had missed out on all of these events through high school until her senior year and she got an injury she couldn't participate in whatever event she was supposed to be in at that time and she was able to go on this retreat she had a wonderful time 
It was a great experience for her. It was, it was a time of spiritual growth and formation that was important in her life. She came back from the event. And months later, I was talking to her dad, a good friend of mine. And he said, you know, we always spent so much time making sure she got to all these things she wanted to do all over the place. Tournaments and games and events and performances and all kinds of stuff. And those were good opportunities for her. But he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm not sure we made the right decision. I'm not sure we got her to the things that mattered. Now please hear this. This is not a story of condemnation of choices that we make or don't make as parents. Because th these were real easy decisions before I had kids, and now my kids are involved in sports, and I'm running them all over the place. And just in one, two seasons of little baseball and t-ball, I'm like, man, this is a lot of running around. And I'm sitting with parents who are just running their kids to horseback lessons and, and swim lessons and singing lessons and trumpet lessons and baseball and, and soccer. And those can be great opportunities. Hear this as a word of challenge. That we as, as parents, we as kids, as teens, have decisions to make about our priorities and what things are most important in our lives. Matthew 16, Jesus says this, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? After fasting, after praying, after, after seeking hard after God's will, Esther begins to put her plan into action. And she goes before the king. She risks her very life. And it pays off. The king decides not to kill his new wife. Decides not to go through the whole pageant thing over the next couple of years again. And Esther begins to host banquets. Buttering up the king and she's inviting Haman along too. And Haman thinks, this is great. The queen, she loves me. She, she's trying to include me in all this stuff. This is, this is wonderful. And after holding several meals and providing great food and and. and hosting great parties, Esther comes and she pleads for her life and the life of her people, which of course is news to the king. He is not aware that she is Jewish and on the list for destruction, and neither is Haman. He is not aware of the jeopardy that he has put Esther into and himself. And when the king learns that Esther is to be destroyed as well. The king turns the tables, or rather the noose, on Haman. 
as they say, no news is good news. Of course, my favorite line from the book, the title of the sermon, and this was the title of National Youth Conference when I went several years ago, comes from Cousin Mordecai. He says, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. And so, if we are again in an exile of sorts, and I think we are, as we look at what's happening in the world around us, and if God has brought us to this time and this place for a reason, and I believe that he has, then what is Spring Creek's calling in this time and this place? As a congregation, we are in a unique place. We've come to this natural moment in our life of looking ahead at the crux of our story, at the climax, of maybe, of our story. And I wonder, will we be silent? Will we say, yeah, look, there's just so much stuff going on out there, and we just need to isolate and insulate ourselves from what's going on? We, it's, it's just better if we collect ourselves and be silent. Or will we act at such a time as this? Our worship, our prayer, maybe some, some good old fasting, some God-centered meditation, studying scripture. They might center us in the spirit to discern together how we might move. We are a church of deep roots and growing branches. We have over 170 years in this community, a rich heritage of Anabaptist and Pietist roots. We have the wisdom of many gray hairs. But we're also beginning to reimagine what that might look like for the 21st century. And there are the young, those joining us that didn't come up from that heritage, those who didn't grow up here, those that have no idea who Reverend Miller was. And they're grafting in some new and different and sometimes wild branches. I believe we've come to a unique moment in our world, in our country, in our own history, in our own life of this church for such a time as this. And I think we need to be and continue to be a people of peace. And I'm not just talking about nonviolence. I'm talking about speaking peace into a broken world. People who are struggling to make ends meet. People who are struggling in, in broken relationships, broken homes. People rushing and hurrying and busy, and we can be a people of peace. It's, it's there in our DNA, it's, it's there in our tradition, in our heritage, and I pray to God that it's there in our present now, because there are so many people in so much, experiencing so much brokenness and, 
experiencing so much rush and hurry and all that stuff that a church of peace can speak of the Prince of Peace. We can be an alternative community that says, rest, peace be with you. An alternative community that isn't about us versus them, that isn't about Republican versus Democrat, that isn't about right versus left, but we can be a people that seeks the shalom, the, the peace, the wholeness of our community. I think we're also called at such a time as this to be uniquely citizens, ambassadors, and heralds of the kingdom of heaven. Look, I believe in peace, and I believe in justice for the oppressed, and I believe in feeding the hungry and more. And that is because I believe in the Prince of Peace who came and had parties and, and ate with the, the vulnerable and the, the sinners, who lifted up the weak and the oppressed, and who fed hungry multitudes. I believe in Jesus who came as the fulfillment and ho of the hopes and dreams of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who came to sit on the, the throne of David, who came to show us the love of God and rescue us from ultimate exile of sin and death. I believe he died in my place and in your place, and I believe that he rose again. He has been handed all authority in heaven on earth. It is this kingdom, his kingdom, to which I belong. And I may be a stranger, an alien, in exile now, but I will go home. Or maybe rather, he will bring home here. This Prince of Peace is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And you all, we all, they all, everyone all is invited to come and to be a part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't look like the empire of the world. Here the slaughtered lamb is the one roaring over the lions of empire. Here the cross is the method of victory rather than the sword. And sometimes it looks like death. But there's always resurrection. And it's worth whatever it costs. I believe the family of faith here at Spring Creek has been called, gifted, resourced, and positioned for such a time as this. I believe that growing in God, in our walk as individuals and together, in following Christ through worship and prayer, fasting, studying, that forms us is critical. And I believe that discipleship, apprenticing after the master, is costly. Will we be silent? Or will we stop, pray, fast, discern God's spirit, and act? This is the challenge for us. As we close our worship this morning, I invite you to turn in your brown hymnal to 602 and to rise in body or spirit.
and saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. 